Hi, I'm Bradley Tusk, the host of Firewall. This is the fifth installment of our year-end series, and today we're going to focus on transportation. My guest is Shabazz Stewart, who has a Brooklyn-based startup called Uni, which offers a really cool solution to the problem of parking and security for bikes and scooters. Shabazz is a guy who knows a lot about micromobility and a lot about transportation. He's a born and bred Brooklynite, so it gives us something to kind of bond off of right off the bat. He knows New York City government and politics incredibly well, knows government and politics around the country really well. I have to say this is one of the favorite podcasts that I've recorded uh, in a very long time, just not because he's so thoughtful and intellectually curious, but you know he knows so much too. Um, so I, I really think you're going to like this. I, I think you're going to really see kind of how people who are inside of micromobility and inside of transportation are thinking about what they do. They're thinking about the future. We touch on things like flying cars and delivery drones, and I want to talk about space travel, but I think we got there. Um, but it's, it's a pretty far-ranging uh, podcast that I think you're really going to like. So uh, thanks for listening to it, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is Shabazz Stewart. Shabazz is a really interesting guy. He and I met a couple of weeks ago for the first time, and, and I really enjoyed it. And, and he's going to come on and talk about transportation, kind of urban living, and, and kind of how everything has changed during COVID, and kind of how, because I think he's a futurist in many ways, he sees the next 10 to 20 years playing out when it comes to transportation. So Shabazz, thank you so much for joining us. Bradley, the pleasure's mine. Good to uh, hear you again. Um, and, uh, you know, here's to um, 2022, right? It's hard to believe we're, we're already there. I'm kind of happy we are. I have to say, I don't think I had a great 2021. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to turning <laughs> the corner on it, to be honest. Uh, well, you know, 2021 was a boomerang. I think we, we thought we were going to get the V recovery. And now we're, we're back to almost where we started I, back to I April, know. back to My March. My kids' school just shut down. Um, so we'll see, we'll see where that all goes. But, you know, let's just, if, if you don't mind, just so the listeners know uh, about your expertise and, and to sort of set up the next half hour, um, just walk us through real quickly, you know, your career, the company you're building now, kind of how you got to this point, all of that. Sure. You know, look, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I, you know, I think Brooklyn, New York is the best place ever, like everyone else in Brooklyn, New York. So Brooklyn, New York is a big part of my my, my story. Um, I, you know, did never learn to drive a car. I was, my mom was a, an immigrant from Barbados. My dad was a deadbeat. So I grew up walking and taking the train and, and riding the bus and, you know, went to college in, in Boston at Tufts and um, studied urban policy and politics and came back and worked at a business improvement district in downtown Brooklyn um, and really got an appreciation for, uh, not just how cities work, but how neighborhoods work and intersectionality, you know, how different sectors, mainly advocacy, you know, for-profit, nonprofits, NGOs, right? You know, how they all work together to craft a public policy framework that governs the way that we live. And I took that kind of operational know-how and that sort of philosophy about the formation um, and the sort of adjudication of public policy and started um, a company called Uni mm -hmm. that is trying to bring new mobility solutions, namely in the form of secure bike parking, um, to cities. And the philosophy is kind of straightforward. 50% of all um, car trips in New York City, and actually in all markets, really all major cities across the country, are under three miles. Um, and 20% are under one mile. And as we think about our climate-mitigated, climate-friendly green future, it's really essential to transfer those errant car trips 
over to more sustainable modes, not just because, um, you know, not just because it's going to be climate friendly and it's going to be something that reduces emissions, but also it's going to increase livability, right? You think about response times, people who are, you have a heart attack, you call the, the, the ambulance, the ambulance gets stuck in traffic. If we can get half of that traffic out of there, you know, people get to where they're going faster for longer trips and essential trips. And so um, my work for the past four years has really been working with government, working with the private sector, private capital, working with advocates to crack this egg in the nation's biggest market here in New York City. And now we're working closely with the MTA, with the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, and with Jersey City to build um, a regional secure bike parking system for the first time in any major city in the country's history. We have a um, fundraiser right now on Republic. Um, so if you want to take a look at Take a look at that and support the the cause, uh, republic.com, uh, sorry, .co slash uni. Um, and we're really excited for the future, really excited for 2022. Very cool. Uh, so so obviously, we well established you're an expert on transportation and transportation policy. So let me start with two questions. One is, um, what do you think from a transportation and kind of urban mobility standpoint changed the most because of COVID? And what do you think the biggest opportunity for the space is coming out of COVID? Yeah, you know, look, I think during COVID um, in, in the urban context, um, the biggest story is the sort of radical decline of public transit, right? As, and, and not, I don't mean this from a from an efficacy standpoint. Public transit is still, in my opinion, the best way to navigate, um, navigate cities when you're talking about going between, you know, three miles and, and 10 miles, et cetera. Um, but because of the perception of fear, right? If you were riding in a, in a small cramped space with other people, you're going to get sick. We really saw this um, historic decline in ridership. And, you know, in some markets like, you know, Los Angeles, really in all markets, we saw, you know, people switch to other modes like cars, but also bikes, scooters, walking, et cetera, right? You know, that is coincided with another big adjacent story in transportation, which is the rise of work from home, right? So now as public transit comes back, we're seeing that commuting patterns have basically changed. So here in New York City, we have a hub and spoke transit system, which you know is, is designed to prioritize people getting in and out of the CBD, which in New York's case is in and around Manhattan. Um, that looks to be something that is going to change dramatically. I'm not frankly sure that we're ever gonna see the, the number of people we saw before going into the old school CBDs, right? Now, before everyone kind of gets mad, Midtown is not going away, right? Instead, I think our CBDs are going to be evolving to be more mixed-use spaces, mixed-use neighborhoods, right? Downtown Manhattan has been doing this for years. Um, so, I, you know, I'm really excited and interested in what the future, you know, how how that revolution plays out for public transit and for um, the sort of urban fabric and neighborhoods and what that means for sort of how we live in cities. So we got a, a new mayor, Eric Adams, coming in here in New York City in about two weeks. Um, if he called you and said Shabazz, and maybe he has, um, how should I structure my transportation policy to take advantage of what you just said? So we're, we, we had this unique moment during the pandemic. It realigned things. I want to make the most of it. What would you tell him? Look, I mean, we got to figure out how to get people to make efficient short trips. So right now, you know, in New York City, um, we've got a transportation system that is about getting people into and out of 
Manhattan, right? And we do a, a less of, a, of, a, of an efficient job in getting people in and around the boroughs or in short trips uh, north of 59th Street. And so can we embrace, you know, the short trip alternative that's not the motor vehicle, right? In this case, it means building a bicycle and scooter network, right? Bikes and scooters are great for short trips. They complement walking very well. Um, can we look at um, augmenting buses, surface transit? Right now in New York, if you, we've got bus lanes, but they're really car lanes because they're packed with cars. I live on Utica Avenue and the bus lane is only active from 7 to 7, 7 a.m., 7 p.m. on weekdays. And so that means that in effect, it's never active because the cars stay parked after 7 a.m. Right. So how can we look to uh, really augment transit and surface modes in particular in a way that is going to... Um, help people take shorter trips in and around their neighborhoods, realizing that that is going to be a place that becomes more and more relevant for people's daily lives. Now, I would also say in the in the longer term, you know, I, I think a model for mayors in general um, was Antonio Vigorosa of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When he became mayor um, and, you know, it was illegal to build subways in Los Angeles um, in 2009. It was just illegal, right? You couldn't build subways. And, and was um, so I, I know yeah. that in reality, it was probably a form of redlining. Was the excuse kind of earthquakes and that kind of thing? Yeah, the excuse was earthquakes. You know, the excuse, which is, of course, dubious because Tokyo <laughs> has plenty of earthquakes. Um, you know, and it just it's just that there was a really strong car lobby in Los Angeles that that didn't want to spend any public dollars on transit, you know, and now LA is the most ambitious progressive city in the country in building transit. They're doubling the size of their fixed guideway transit network. Um, I don't see why New York can't do the same thing. You know, transportation is a nexus issue, right? Um, you look at housing, you look at, um, you know, commuting patterns when it comes to where people work, you know, urban happiness, right? You know, they all intersect with the circulatory system of the city. And here in New York, we have whole boroughs that are simply not connected to the subway system. Staten Island, you know, is the size of Brooklyn, but people don't really realize that because they can't get there. And so I think that any administration coming in, in the short and medium term, thinking about boosting surface transportation, you know, reducing errant car trips, improving quality of life at the surface, you know, is low-hanging fruit, priority one. Of course, my work intersects with that in building bike parking, but also leaving a legacy of rejiggering and restarting building real capital projects, right? In New York City, we have 472 stations. I think 95% of them were built before 1965, right. right? So we are living on the labor of our predecessors. And what are we going to leave people who come after us, our successors? We're going to leave them um, with big buildings and little subways. So something like Measure M, uh, which I think for the listeners, and, and you obviously know about this, was a, a a ballot measure in Los Angeles County that passed in 2016 that I think devoted something like $40 billion in new money for transit projects. Um, it, has that been working? And do you think that's the kind of vision that cities need to have? Yeah, you know, look, I think Measure M and actually Measure R, which came after, um, really are a template for the entire country. And there was something after that that came forward called basically America Fast Forward, which I think that I, I wish the Obama administration had been more aggressive in pursuing. Basically, you know, when people say we can't get it done, we can't do it, you know, Los Angeles is a car town, right? It is a place where people get around in cars, right? And Los Angeles voted, the residents of Los Angeles voted to tax themselves twice to pay for public transit, right? 
So they can get it done in Los Angeles. Don't tell me we can't get it done in New York or in Boston or Washington, D.C. or in San Francisco. And in Los Angeles, you know, the, the mayor basically said at the height of the Great Recession, hey, you know, we have all this public money coming in backed by a sales tax referendum. Right. We are going to ask the federal government to give us a loan. Right. So we can accelerate all this development like FDR style. Right. And, you know, cities across the country from Seattle to Denver joined on in the coalition. It came known as America Fast Forward. Um, and it just it, it kind of petered out. It didn't really go very far. You know, I, I think here in New York, we're having a debate about congestion pricing. You know, I think it's going to happen. Um, we need to think not only about how we can leverage local revenues and local taxes to finance mass transit, but how we can leverage federal spending. We have this massive infrastructure bill to accelerate development as we look towards revitalizing the urban economies, getting people back to work, not just at, you know, at, at sort of like, you know, interim jobs, but really meaningful careers. Why can't we build the next generation of urban infrastructure um, and thereby solve our urban housing crisis and improve quality of life? And get people employed again um, with with this kind of innovative financial mechanism. I mean, we are the richest society that ever graced the planet. Building subways and building infrastructure uh, in the urban context shouldn't be so hard. The other thing we got to think about is cost control, right? It costs in New York City. You know, New York City has this, the the world's First most expensive subway, yep. second most expensive subway, third most expensive subway, right? We own them all. It's <laughs> it's it's something that, you know, we so no why? one comes close well, to. I us. mean, I, I why is it so insanely expensive to to extend a subway line? Because it, look, there's no easy answer to that, but the real answer to why is that we haven't spent the time to go through the process to figure it out, right? Like no one talks about cost control ever because it's the one thing that requires someone to take on unions, to take on, you know, how we spend money largest, to take on these big private contractors. The MTA, if you've ever read an RFP from the government, right? They I, have by the way, these, all of our listeners do that for fun most nights. So that it should so be easy. Yeah. That <laughs> they they you know, these procurement rules, which I think come from a place of best practice, like how can we prevent corruption? These government agencies are basically reduced to putting in writing all the ways they've ever been screwed before and then like putting that into some sort of like, you know, procurement document. And of course, only the biggest contractors now can reply. And it's just a Byzantine way to do business. And look, I'm not saying that's the reason. I just think that's a part of it. And we have to really unpack the way that we build infrastructure because how can Paris which is older than New York, you know, which is which has stronger unions than New York, which has just as much sort of like a history of corruption as New York. How can Paris build infrastructure at 25% the cost? You know, they're building like 60 subway stations in Paris, right? For like half the cost. So what, what, what would you say they're doing differently? I, I'd say that in Europe, and again, like I, cost control, we have to get used to this idea that it's going to be a pie chart of reasons, right? We have, we have, you know, part of the part of the legacy is the environmental impact review, like slowing down highway projects like this all leads to this cacophony of reasons that we can't build anything anymore. But the biggest, most salient reason that I think everyone else is so far ahead of us is they're committed to figuring out here in New York, here in America, no one talks about it. It's like, sure, we you know, we'll spend 12 billion dollars in east side access to build one station under Grand Central, right? And two miles of tunnel. Um, and that's okay because it's going to be worth it. The ROI is going to be there. But 
if it costs $2 billion instead of $12 billion, think about all the other good projects we could have done, right? You know, we, we've got in New York, the Utica Avenue subway, we've been talking about for generations. You know, the RPA, which I'm a member of in the New York chapter, puts out these these proposals, dots in a map, right? And you see it every once in a while, you get on Twitter or Instagram, and you've got people talking about building a subway line here, subway line there. And in America, it just increasingly sounds like fantasy, right? We just know it's never going to happen. Not in our lifetime. You just say that. Oh, it'll never happen because it's just been so much money. It takes so much time. But that's crazy <laughs> for the richest country in the world to basically be resigned and relegated to a position where building infrastructure is just dots in the map in fantasy land. Yeah. And that's got to change. And we've got to have the political commitment to tackle this big gorilla of cost control. And once we put our minds to it, I think everything else will fall in place. So I'm going to throw out some, some different kind of big ideas in transportation technology. And what I would like from you is, one, your reaction to it, like, it, do you think it's important or not? And then two, what would it take to actually make it happen? And then third, by when? So uh, I'll start with Hyperloop. Uh, look, Hyperloop is, it, uh, Hyperloop is great in the context of the future, right? So for getting on Mars, for one day, are we going to see Hyperloop, you know, 50 years from now, getting around, you know, the planet Earth? Sure, absolutely, right? It's a technology that, you know, conceptually amazing, but a, a working, no one has ever ridden a Hyperloop. I'm going to say that again, no, a living person I mean, it doesn't exist, I, right? Well, I, no, I mean, a living person has never taken a Hyperloop, you know, more than I think, what, 10 miles? Like, like it, it, we, we, it's, it's really a concept at this point. And where I fall off the bandwagon, and maybe one segment of your audience gets mad at me, um, you know, is the, we are so far away from applying that technology to any semblance of commercial application. I mean, for perspective. The car, the motor vehicle, was really invented in the late 1800s. It took 50 years of creating infrastructure in America to the point to get to the point where the car was considered, you know, efficacious to get, you know as a way to get around. Right? It was it was safe. It was it was really viable in the urban context. Right? So the idea that we're going to like replace high speed rail um, in America with the Hyperloop tomorrow, I, I just think is is fantasy land. It's living. It's a farce. Right? We can say, look, in the future, maybe Hyperloop is going to be viable, but we're not close to that point. With self-driving cars. So give me give me your prediction for if Hyperloop is ever a reality, uh, when are we thinking about it? 30, 40, 50 years from now. I mean, I mean, the question is, it, it, we've got to prove it can work. I mean, no one's proven it can work yet, right? Let, let alone, can we build it on scale? I mean, look, maglev technology has been around for 30 years, right? Trains that float yeah. on magnets, right? It works, yep. right? How many maglevs do we have? So, so, so it, there, there's so many layers of questions. Does it work? Is it safe? Is it commercially viable? Does it make sense? Like before, right now, I think they're real people, and it's it's disturbing to me. People in government think we're going to have Hyperloop going between New York and DC tomorrow. Like that's just not how infrastructure works, right? We we can't even complete an environmental impact review in under three years in some of these cases, right? The idea that we're going to go from no prototype, you know, it's a it's a concept to, hey, this is something that people are taking right now. I, I just don't think, I, I think it's not going to happen. We got we to look in the future 40, 50 years. Now, 
50 years from now, are people going to be zipping on Hyperloops? I, I think that's a real prospect. 50 years ain't that long in the context of real um, game-changing infrastructure. The National Aviation System took 50 years to build, right? We had jets in the 30s. It wasn't really till the 60s and 70s that we were flying around in jets, right? And from a commercial standpoint, that's a blink of an eye. All right, next one. Flying cars. Well, we've been talking about flying cars since the Jetsons, right? Um, are we? Are we? You know, are we talking about like vertical takeoff? You know, helicopters. So let's say, right, so for, just to make this conversation a, a little more simple, so we'll go with you know EVTOL, which is you know uh, vertical takeoff yeah. and, and landing. And so let's you know sort of glorified helicopter, but but let's just say a world in which a non-zero percentage of the population is getting from point A to point yep. B in the sky. So I, I have a nuanced take on this. And I think the market, the press is getting this all wrong. And it's in part because of how some of these companies um, are, are are going about marketing this technology, right? This idea that flying cars, air taxis, whatever we're calling them, are going to save us from urban congestion is, is fantastical. It's kind of silly. Foremost, look, it's just a physics problem. Like cars whether they're on the ground or in the air, just aren't efficient ways to get around cities. We know that. We've always known that, right? We need to reduce car trips in cities because they take a lot of space. And so migrating them to the air is going to be terrible. They're going to be noisy. They're going to crash. They're gonna, you know. And then thinking about crashing, we don't yet have the technology, the air traffic control systems, the governance systems, the insurance systems in place to govern these really on scale in the urban context. Can you imagine... What happens when one of these things falls from the sky, which is going to happen? Can you imagine when people start complaining that they're, they're, they bought a, a, a 15 story you know, building, a, a penthouse, and they have a giant helicopter flying past them, right? It, it's just something that is going to be very challenging in the urban context to see really making a dent when you're talking about mass transportation. However, I think what's really exciting is the idea of short range, I'm sorry, medium range trips. So can I get from Manhattan to uh, to JFK Airport, or can I get from Manhattan to Rockland County, from Manhattan to the Hamptons, from New York to Philadelphia, right? You know, a, a 70 mile plus trip, 30 miles, 70 miles, 100 miles. Um, I think we're going to revolutionize that market because that short haul trip, that medium haul trip right now is owned by helicopters, is owned by, um, you know, is owned by cars. And it, you know, and it takes a long time often and it's very inefficient. So can we get more people onto these sort of medium range vehicles here? You know, it doesn't make any sense to take a plane to fly from New York to Philadelphia and people do, right? They could fly to a much more efficient vertical takeoff and landing vehicle, get there much faster with much less, you know, air traffic control infrastructure. So I think that market, New York to Philadelphia, New York to the Hamptons, Los Angeles to, um, you know, to, to San Diego, for example, right? It's going to be totally revolutionized by these medium range vehicles, you know, London to Paris, right? Um, and of course, you know, we've got transit infrastructure, London to Paris, we've got the channel, but there's so many other places that are within medium, what we call medium range trips that are not served by, by transit infrastructure that these vertical takeoff and landing vehicles are gonna be great for, right? So we should think of them less as cars and more like light helicopters that are efficient and cheaper. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be a really competitive market. We're going to open up that light helicopter market to lots more people still on the high end. We're not talking about going to the grocery store on a flying taxi, 
but we are talking about, hey, I'm taking a trip today to the beach, to Jones Beach, right? And is this going to be a premium option for me and my family that's maybe going to cost $100 a ticket, right? Um, or, or $150 a ticket that I'm willing to pay. And we're going to see that emergence of that market for sure. Um, autonomous cars and trucks. Oh, actually, on, on flying cars, or, you know, obviously the, the, way, you, the way you define it, uh, give me a date. 15 years, I think, you know, I think we're 15 years out um, from 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 this being commercially viable, right? Now, the technology exists today, but what doesn't exist, and I think people often overlook this, is the management infrastructure, right? Our, I mean, the, you see these, these, these cartoons, these sort of, these, these renderings, and they're taking off from buildings, right? Remember, a helicopter fell off the MetLife building, that worked back in the Pan Am building, right? Um, so... We've got to have infrastructure in place um, and, and rules and procedures in place that allow these to exist as, as truly commercially viable, not just in Dallas or in Las Vegas, but in cities across the country. And I think we're, we're still 15 years away from that point where you can realistically get on your phone, get on your computer and order one of these, you know, without having a, a, a set of special permissions, Right. Again, 15 years isn't a very long time. We're talking about being in 2022. I remember when it was still 2015. Um, that's actually relatively quick in the context of, of transportation. So, uh, all right. So now let's go to autonomous cars and trucks. Yeah, I, I, I think autonomous vehicles are great. Um, again, I, you know, look, Brad, I think that um, I think that we got to kind of parse the, the promises with the the, the, the reality, right? Real, the real benefits. And so and a lot of these technologies are sort of, we sort of react to the hype, right? Which is driven by yeah. speculation, right? It's going to change everything. I didn't want to say it, but you said, you said it, right? But, <laughs> but you know, it's going to change everything. It's going to be great. We're going to have it tomorrow, right? That, so, that doesn't preclude the real benefits of autonomous vehicles. As a cyclist, I don't know how to drive. So there are two benefits for me. As a cyclist, I would much, much, much prefer to drive my bike, you know, ride my bike next to an autonomous vehicle that's not going to be distracted by their phone, you know, reading their email, right? That's not going to be drunk than I would biking next to a person, right? The humans have real margin of error. We have 250 traffic-related deaths in New York City every year. We've had 499 murders for perspective. So we have almost half as many traffic deaths as we do murders, and traffic deaths are at random unlike murders, right? So we can save a lot of lives by having efficacious, um, workable, viable, autonomous technology. But also we can afford people in the suburbs and rural areas, and even in some urban contexts, the benefits of car ownership, even though they don't have driver's licenses, right? So for example, like I, when I have to move apartments, you know, the game, I'm reduced to kind of like begging my friends to like, who has a car that can drive me around town, right? Um, having autonomous driving will make that process a lot easier. Long haul freight, you know, a lot easier, right? So, and for, in the mass transit context, oh my God, like having autonomous buses, you know, is going to revolutionize surface transit in cities, right? Here in New York, we're still trying to get autonomous trains, right? Right. We want to get trains on community vacations based train control because it's just much more efficient to run a transit system that way. Um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, the, the autonomy of the vehicle is going to deliver um, lots of really credible benefits to cities. What it won't change is physics, right? We know that cars are inefficient ways to get around cities because they take up lots of space, both when they're moving, when they're parked. 
And autonomous driving is not going to change that fact, right? Cars are penthouse transportation. I don't mean that in a bad way. Everyone loves to live in the penthouse. The penthouse is the premium. It's the luxury. It's the best, right? We can't all live in the penthouse all the time. The penthouse requires people to live below, right? So cars are always going to be a premium way to navigate our city. And there are going to be times when you pay for it and times when it makes more sense to ride mass transit and cities are always going to prefer mass transit over penthouse transportation. Do you, do you think suburbs win with autonomous cars because all of a sudden people can live out somewhere for more space, less money, and then get, get to the metro area a lot faster because all the cars are now driving themselves at a, at a much higher rate? Or um, do you think fundamentally it, it wouldn't impact them one way or the other? That's an interesting question. I I, I should like to see, think that we're, right now we're actually seeing a blurring of the line between suburban living and urban living. I think, you know, for the previous generation, there was this really grand debate about who would win out in the in the 21st century? Would it be the cities or would it be the suburbs, right? And it, for many years, I think the consensus or at least the prevailing wisdom was that cities were going to, you know, win the day. But what actually started happening is suburbs started to, to, to densify and to urbanize, right? And so um, if you live in a suburb today in America, particularly a satellite suburb of New York or Los Angeles, you're much more likely to live in an urban environment. Um, so we're seeing that blurring of the lines. I don't know if autonomous vehicles, autonomous driving um, in one way or the other are going to fundamentally shift um, lifestyle preferences. I think people like to walk and I think people like to walk um, in walkable human centric spaces, right? Um, we've seen a real backlash to the kind of culture that, you know, where you never have to set foot on the ground, where you don't have to ever walk, right? And we've seen a whole generation, both Gen Z, millennials, and even even Gen X, right, really embrace communities that um, are walkable. The French Quarter is never going to be, right, like a highway or car paradise. It's, it's terrible to drive in the French Quarter, but people love the French Quarter because they can walk to their bar, they can walk home, right? Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure if, if, if autonomous vehicles are going to change it, except for the fact that I actually think it's going to make it much safer to walk. I think, you know, people don't talk enough about, yeah. well, people don't talk enough about if you ever walked in the suburbs, you know, they have some cities, I think out in the suburbs that say like, wear reflective vests <laughs> when you're walking so the cars can yeah. see you. Um, it, 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 you know, people are going to be able to walk with more confidence. The sidewalk's going to be able to be wider because cars, hopefully, you know, when we have this technology and scale are going to operate with far lower margins for error, right? Um, and that's going to give pedestrians greater confidence that they can get around. Now, it also will mean that people don't, you know, will take, we're going to see the rise of, I think, mobility as a service in the car context. Obviously, we have Uber and Lyft now, but in the suburban context, hey, can I take a trip to the city center, the town center? I don't need to park my car, right? The car will just go away, take someone else somewhere, right? Um, and I can walk around. Now, so in that context, I think it will make urban lifestyles in the suburbs much easier, which is a trend we're already seeing. We're seeing whole towns and cities in the suburbs really of you know take on um, urban characteristics. What and driver and autonomous trucks like it's the technology. And we actually had Don Burnett, who's the founder and CEO of, of Kodiak, uh, on the show like a week ago, 
and they do mid-mile trucking where it's autonomous kind of for 300 miles going straight in the same lane on I-10 or I-80 or something like that. Uh, so that, that I think is basically here already. Do, when do you see a world where autonomous trucks can navigate city streets? Well, you know, remember people forget that trucks are um, in many cities banned, these big tractor trailers. In New York, they're not street legal, right? And so <laughs> people don't care and enforcement doesn't care, but actually these giant, you know, long haul, you know, 18 wheeler trucks are, are actually not street legal in, in most cities. Um, I, I think there will be a revolution on um, on short haul trucks, right? You know, for Amazon, for USPS, for UPS, for, um, for FedEx, uh, you know, DHL, etc. You know, cities have to figure out last mile package delivery. And, you know, we do right now a terrible job with it. We pretend it doesn't exist, right? But it's only going to get more prevalent and the traffic's only going to get worse, right? And so I think autonomous vehicles, you know, are really about smaller trucks that can um, deliver efficiently and can drive around cities without causing um, traffic problems. And part of that will be having less space for parking, less space for cars, and having commercial loading zones. Um, I don't know if I see a future where, all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have people, you know, on a bike and people, you know, with strollers next to an 18 wheeler, you know, big rig going down the street, right? Um, it's just not really scaled appropriately um, for cities. But again, I, I do think that drones, small trucks are going to be really essential for package delivery and short haul tr uh, trips in cities, because so much of our future is going to be, you know, you order stuff increasingly from online and expect it to get to you. Um, in 15 minutes, cargo bikes, etc. Um, how do we yep. get stuff from 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 commercial retailers that are increasingly going to operate out of warehouses to um, the people who uh, order the goods? So I have a last question I want to ask you, and I didn't even get to, by the way, we're gonna have to have you back on if you're willing, because I also would, if, if we had more time, I would throw um, switching to all electric vehicles, electric planes, delivery drones, and space tourism. So you can you can think about those for I the next the time. I love the chat. So whenever you're ready, I'm, I'm always. I'm yeah, always this is awesome. <laughs> I know that you're a big Jane Jacobs fan and that it was, you know, you have talked about publicly how it really kind of shaped your, your worldview and your life and your career and everything else. Um, is she still relevant today? And if so, why? Yeah, I think she's absolutely relevant. Look, I think that what Jane Jacobs did is she was one of the first people to explain to us how the world, how the world around us actually worked. Right? I grew up in the city. Of course, I knew the city very well firsthand. But what I was not equipped with was an understanding of why it worked. Um, and so much of our understanding of cities and, and, and how cities are structured um, are counterintuitive, right? Like, you know, we've been taught that bigger houses are better, cars are good, there are signs of wealth, right? The wider streets are good, induced demand doesn't, you know, really register. And what Jane Jacobs did is she came along and basically said, no, all these are wrong. These these kind of this prevailing wisdom is wrong. Cities, their density is good, right? Neighborhoods work in very complex ways, and we should embrace that. Now, the central thesis of the book is still just as relevant today as it was in the 1960s. She basically says that great cities operate with a different set of rules than small cities and suburbs, right? The great cities, by, which, by great she means New York and Los Angeles, big cities are their own unique ecosystems and therefore applying principles that we would apply to 
you know, for a city like, you know, my mom lives in Augusta, Georgia sometimes, right? She's retiring there. Applying those principles from Augusta, Georgia to a city like New York just aren't going to work, right? And right. Right. that thesis is still remarkably true. We just had a whole conversation about how can autonomous driving work in the suburban context versus the urban context. The rules are completely different. Um, I think that's still very relevant. I think how we build cities to be human-powered, human-focused, um, to, to emphasize quality of life, to emphasize mass transit is still truer today than it was, just as true today as it was in the 1960s. And so, look, I, I hope everyone reads their Jane Jacobs because, um, you know, I think it's something that that is quite relevant. Now, I will say that, you know, what what I don't think Jane Jacobs really got because not because she she didn't she didn't understand it. Um, it just wasn't it was hard to imagine in the urban decay period of the 60s. Right. Gentrification and the housing crisis. Right. In the, the narrative of the 60s was, you know, white flight. People are leaving the city. And when they're not leaving the city, they're tearing down whole neighborhoods, like the village, right? Like, like in Boston, the North End, right? So she basically writes about what makes these places special and principles to, you know, to really reform cities so that we can preserve that, that, that sort of sanctity. Um, but what we didn't think about was, okay, what happens in a world where there's increasing demand to live in these cities once again? How do we protect and preserve not the architectural character but the socioeconomic character of these places right um yeah she yeah. wasn't i think to someone and it, and by the way like it's not just jane jacobs i mean you know from urban you know from history history of new york like in the 90s if you told somebody that bedford stuyvesant in brooklyn would become unaffordable they would have looked at you like you were crazy and, you were nuts. and yeah, the entire generation of urban of urban planning was basically dedicated to urban renewal, right? Getting people to live in these neighborhoods. We never contemplated the idea that these neighborhoods would have so much demand that there would be an affordability crisis. It didn't even register. So we had we got whiplash. You know, yeah. gentrification wasn't even a term that was commonly used in in the, in, the, in, in urban vernacular until the 2010s. And so I just don't think it's not just a Jane Jacobs issue. Whole generations of people and, and policymakers just really weren't trained to think about, you know, less supply and more demand. We're all thinking about, you know, more supply and less demand and reach and getting that people and getting that demand back up. And so it's a little bit of a of a of a of a different era, I suppose, in that context. Shabash, thank you so much. I, we could easily go another half an hour if, if Hugo would let us, but I'm gonna blame Hugo here and he keeps texting me to tell me to wrap it up. But um <laughs> Thank you for coming on. How do people find out uh, more about about this, your company? So, so we're trying to build a secure bike parking network in New York and other cities across the country. You can go to republic.co uh, dash or sorry uh, slash uni o o n e e. We are raising money. Uh, we've got six hundred and fifty backers already, micro investments, and we're trying to get to that first um, crowdfunded one point oh seven million. Um, we hope we get there soon. Cool. Hey, Shabazz Stewart, thanks for joining. Thank us. you so much for having me, Bradley. Yeah.